Hello folks, Aaron Pennenberg back with all things HEMA. So today for episode 13, we're going to do a little something different. And what we're going to do is I'm going to discuss some of the questions that have been raised on the historical fencing affiliations internal e-list. Um, it's not a confidential e-list, but it's an e-list for members of the HFA and it's really a discussion based upon this idea of the master rank. Uh, the reason why I'm doing it as a podcast is because it brings up all sorts of interesting topics that we've discussed in previous podcasts. And is also very um, applicable to like martial artists in general as we navigate this idea of creating a master rank. Or at least trying to define what a master might entail within the HFA Obviously, the idea of a master in HEMA is, is one of those things that's imbued with all sorts of emotional uh, attachments and such, so we'll discuss that a little bit. But first, the sponsors, and I'm excited to announce a new sponsor, but first, Albion Swords, History in Your Hand. Uh, they have a very new, sexy website, and it's, uh, I think, very well done. So check it out at www.albion-swords.com. You know, they have uh, the best historically accurate reproduction European swords in the world. They are made in New Glarus, Wisconsin, a beautiful Wisconsin town with a lot of Swedish history. Um, and, you know, Mike Sigman, who is the uh, company's kind of web presence and customer service rep and now one of the uh, controlling members of the Albion company itself. He is a fixture in the HEMA world. Uh, like I said, they have just a very unique uh, omnipresence uh, to all, all HEMA activities and such. So we thank Albion Swords for all their constant, consistent, excellent work and uh, great quality. Advocare, Kara Gary Lewis, um, like I said, he he um, promotes the Spark and O2 Gold products for martial arts pursuits. You can contact him at G Lewis, that's G-L-E-W-I-S, 9221, at gmail.com. Then, of course, Umbrella Forge, Jeremiah Bachhaus's business. He is a HFA provost running the Wisconsin Historical Fencing Association West Bend chapter as the lead instructor and owner. He's a, like I said, he's the forged and fire champion. Try to say, like I said, less, right? But if you're looking for some lasting heirloom quality steel products, like a knife, an axe, some kind of art, if you can dream it, he can make it. Contact Jeremiah Bachhaus at umbrellaforge at gmail.com. Again, that's umbrellaforge at gmail.com. Then, of course, Larry Brummond, Brummond's Setter's Honey. It's the best honey in the world, there's no doubt about it. It's harvested from the clover fields of northeastern Wisconsin. He's got a bunch of industrious little bees there. It's locals only, though. It's a secret society of people who can get access to his awesome honey. And then the new sponsor, which I'm super excited about, Seth's Coffee. It's a local favorite. It's in Appleton behind the History Museum off of College Avenue. It's like a secret location almost. It's kind of fun even just to find the place, but it's not hard to find. Like I said, it's right behind the History Museum 
uh, off of College Avenue. It's an old like teller uh, window for a bank chain or something that's now taken over by Seth's Coffee. Um, and also in Little Shoot, right next to the windmill. And I, I say windmill seriously. The village of Little Shoot some years ago got together and uh, built a traditional Dutch windmill. Like I talked about in previous podcasts, you know, Wisconsin has a lot of direct like connection to European um, uh, ethnic backgrounds and such. And Little Shoot is known for a very Dutch uh, type of background and makeup. So that community got together and built a full-size Dutch windmill in the traditional style. It's awesome to go to. It even grinds up flour and stuff. You can go in there and see it in action. It's pretty cool. But Seth's Coffee is just down the road. This coffee is amazing. It's uh, roasted on site. We're talking pour overs, specialty coffees, artisan coffee type preparation with attention to detail and craftsmanship. Uh, They are proud of each cup of coffee. It's never mass produced. It's always satisfying. I never leave Seth's thinking, oh, I wish I had a better cup of coffee. It keeps me sustained. It's wonderful. So thank, thank you, Seth's Coffee. All right, so, and now what we are going to do is we are going to discuss a question that was given to me on our e-list. And this question uh, has multiple parts, and really it has to do with a proposal that the HFA is trying to hammer out within its member organizations. And the proposal has to do with the definition of the master rank within the historical fencing affiliations rank structure. In the past, because of the, you know, the sketchy nature of this topic, we have left the we've identified that there's a master rank, but we've left it open and undefined. So no one could could acquire that rank. The highest rank you could get was provost. Um, and so what we've done now is said, okay, you know, the HFA, is, is it mature enough at this point in its exploration of HEMA to now at least define what the HFA thinks a master rank would entail? Not that any specific member of the HFA has acquired this particular uh, knowledge base. We just want to say, what would it take for us to confidently say, okay, this individual, we are going to award a master rank to. And of course, lots of discussion based upon that. Um, I did make a proposal about some ideas uh, of what I thought a master rank might entail. And there's been a lot of questions uh, regarding kind of what I meant. So in fleshing out this this idea, a lot of people are asking me questions and I'm going to illuminate a few questions. So this is taken from my proposal um, and these are just sections and then I'll talk about them. But master rank, uh, this is what I said basically. Master rank, this candidate must have accomplished all previously discussed conditions of the rank structure. Additionally, having accomplished the rank of provost, this candidate will occupy this rank for a period of at least five years. And the question was, Question regarding accomplished all previously discussed conditions. Does this mean the candidate must have held all the ranks within our common rank structure prior to provost or simply have done everything required to attain those ranks? That's the question. Um, And this is a great question. The answer is 
is one of those things where we've been discussing the idea of like members from outside the HFA coming into our rank structure and then how do we fit them in. Sam Street is a probably a great example where you know Sam left uh, one club, moved here and joined our club. So like you know Sam's got a background in HEMA. He's been doing it for X amount of years. He's been having success in tournaments. You know Sam Street is not a novice practitioner. So I think it would do him a great disservice and also you know the organization as a whole in terms of the HFA it would be very unpopular and unattractive if people with previously established histories um, and um, you know experiences in HEMA, if we would require them to plug them into the base rank, like okay, now you're you know now you're basically a, a novice scholar again. Um, and so we've had a lot of debate and stuff about that. We have not really cleaned up that process yet. It's kind of one of those things where most, no, I should say all of our ranks don't have a time in grade um, portion to them. So in other words, if you come into the HFA and you have this previous experience, you can proceed through the rank structure like within a day, depending upon your experience level, right? You could just say, well, I've done this, this, the other thing, and boom, you know, somebody could look at that and without having to go through a bunch of administrative processes, they could award you a rank uh, immediately, depending upon your history. So it's one of those things where this question is you know do they have to go through each step or could they just be plugged in someplace uh, to achieve that particular position in terms of the uh, requirement to have achieved all these previous things and and the idea is you know the the rank structure is built in such a way that we are trying to snapshot your previous history and your abilities and at the same time though figure out like what is important to us in this rank structure in terms of each rank and where do you slide into that particular position. So somebody who has a ton of experience but has never, let's say, uh, played their prize, which is a requirement for senior free scholar, they would have to at some point play their prize to continue along the rank structure process. Um, so Sam is another great example. So Sam, you know, to my knowledge, has not played a prize but he's been in you know bazillion tournaments and stuff. He can certainly do that. So Sam would just say, "Look, I want to play my prize uh, at the next op opportunity," and we would try and you know make that happen for him. So that's one of those things. So would they have to physically go through each of the ranks prior to this position? I mean, yes, in a way, but that could be very um, quick, or that could be done very seamlessly or that could be represented in the person or the candidate's previous history and such. So that's kind of the idea. So do they have to hold the ranks? I mean, yeah, but they could hold those almost symbolically in a way as they come in with previous experience and stuff. So that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. And then um, one of my last pieces of that is um, once you reach the rank of provost, then this candidate will occupy this rank for a period of at least five years. So what's the deal with the five years? Uh, and the question was, what's the significance of the five-year requirement? Now, the answer I give is, is this. So 
you know, time, time is a commodity, right? And time is one of those things that is, is a quantitative kind of like benchmark. We can say like, this person has done this for X amount of years. Look how many people in HEMA constantly discuss on Facebook or in conversation, like how long they've been doing this. Really what they're trying to do is they're trying to establish some kind of like precedence. They're kind of establish some kind of like, you know, experience, uh, awareness of their, of their history, some kind of legitimacy. They're trying to say like, I've been doing this for, you know, 10 years now. Well, somebody who says that to you just off the, off the top of your head, if they say they've got 10 years of experience in HEMA, you can say, okay, they're, they're not a novice person. Um, they're like, there's someone who's, who's done this for some time and, and we can quantify that time period and say, okay, you know, I want to listen to this person or, oh, I've only been doing this for like six months or I've been doing this for 20 plus years. All those areas just on the face of it speak to us at some level. So there's value into that just blanket statement. Now, what, why I picked five years uh, is because in five years, right, you become aware of that, that thing, that, that peace, that legitimacy. So you, you do something for five years and it's not like you're new, but it's not like, you know, a bunch of time is wasted. It's, it's kind of one of those waypoints where I say five years is enough time to have fully acclimated to the idea of the of the position, and also probably experience you know some some uh, some difficulties or some redefinitions in your mind in terms of how this how this rank affects you. Um, now I've been a provost for uh, boy I think probably fifteen years, maybe not, maybe twelve years or so, certainly around ten years at least. And in, in my journey as a provost, as thinking of myself as a provost, as representing myself as a provost, as people thinking of me as a provost, um, you encounter things that, that affect how you relate to that. You know, I've had, and I've, okay, I've studied and have practiced just about every weapon in the HEMA tradition to some extent. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, uh, I'm going to, boot stomp anybody with any weapon that's not that's not the claim the claim is i'm aware of all the different weapons and and the different masters and the different uh training ideas and things like that um you know jeremy pace came down visited me and we were doing side sword and then he started talking to me about second intention and you know this kind of stuff the, the idea of the intentions and i'm like yes I'm aware of all those things. I can speak to them. I can talk about them. I understand that mentality. Do I practice side sword a ton? Not really. You know, I, I really don't. I'm, I'm aware of it. I can do it to some extent, but you know, I'm not going to beat somebody constantly who or consistently who's constantly practicing in that weapon and really, uh, you know, speaks to that weapon. Right? That's like their thing. Uh, Tim Hayes, our senior free scholar here in. Appleton in the Appleton chapter, he's very good with that weapon. Now I can I can practice with him and I can hold my own certainly, and that's the idea of like a provost. The provost should have knowledge in just about every 
you know, weapon system to some extent. They should have knowledge in just about every master. They should understand the, the criteria and the topics and stuff. They might not, that particular weapon, whatever it might be, might not be their, their best weapon in terms of their, their practical aspect, but they're going to be fine in it. They're going to beat novice people with it. They're going to beat, you know, middle of the road people with it even and, and be able to, to, to show it in such a way that'll, that'll do it justice. So that's kind of the idea. Um, so, so the five-year requirement is one of those things where it's just, it's, it's a objective standard that we can put a stamp on. We can say, you've been a provost for five years. There's some acknowledgement of some value to that time in grade just on the face of it. And that's kind of the idea. That is the only uh, time requirement that we've put a stamp on so far in our HFA rank structure until, unless you consider like a novice going to a free scholar, which generally we look at like one to two years or so, uh, or not one to two years, about a year, I think. Anyways, that, that's not in the charter. It's just kind of suggested in terms of that uh, difference. Or I think it's from scholar to free scholar, excuse me. So yeah, scholar, like coming to the door, being a novice, getting all your equipment, you know, plugging in, getting hooked. Then uh, going from scholar to free scholar, we look at as like a year to two years or so. But again, that's not in, in stone. It's just suggested by some of the ideas in the rank structure. Okay, so here's another um, portion that I put on my proposal. Uh, this candidate must have a clear record of the development and training of a number, not single individuals, of HFA scholars who themselves hold the rank of senior free scholar or higher. So the idea of senior free scholar in the HFA structure is like that's your black belt, okay? That's like your instructor who's recognized not just with your within your own walls of your club, but also outside of them. So they're you know, they're, they're able to go out and train other HEMA individuals in other clubs and, and be uh, proficient in that. They're comfortable in that uh, role. They're, they're one of those persons that is an instructor outside of their own walls. There's plenty of club-level instructors that you can develop, and that's the free scholar level, where you can ask that person within the confines of your own peer group and your own club to you know, train a new person or to help out with a with a teaching here or there. It's one of those persons, they're not going to lead their own seminar or anything, but they are certainly able to help and assist you in, in instructing to, to whatever degree. You know, some of my free scholars could run their own class and do run their own class, no problem. And some, you know, you'd want to give them some, some pointers, you'd want to give them some assistance, but generally they can teach all the basics without a problem. The senior free scholar now has played their own prize and they've been successful in it. Um, and they are, they are one of those individuals that can go out and teach outside of the walls of the club without the supervision or assistance of a provost um, or a club leader or something. They can go out and do that on their own in their own right. Okay, so that's senior free scholar kind of idea. So why is it important, I think, for a master rank to have done to have developed a number of those senior free scholars, not just one. This is kind of a touchy subject, but the idea is, so what is a master in my mind? A master is, is not those individuals that's solely invested in the scholarly or the scholarship activity, okay? 
the scholarship activity is, is for the scholars, right? What the master needs to, to be aware of is, is the efforts of those scholars generally. A scholar is somebody who, you know, thinks about a thesis or thinks about a topic in HEMA and they flesh that topic out. They tease it out of the history. They, they kind of cement themselves into their concept of what they think and then they go out and prove it, right? Or they work it or they massage it or they discover things. That process in and of itself is a discipline. So like they're, they're a master in their own way doing things right that are that are different than what i view like a master uh teacher is doing a master teacher a master instructor is is developing other teachers so and i'm talking about boots on the ground on the mat developing drills developing exercises developing you know this pedagogy developing methodology they're using the activity of the scholars to assist them in that process. And what's important, I think, about the master that's developing other teachers in HEMA is that they have an open mind, that they, they do not cement themselves into one particular school of thought or one discipline of thought in terms of all these materials, these historical materials. I've encountered a lot of of people who who do cement themselves into that train of thought into one way of thinking about a particular manuscript or a particular master or a particular weapon and what i see is that they're kind of like stuck they're kind of um invested in that in that theology and that in that moment and you can see them really struggling to, to stay there in a way, because they have to, to some extent. You know, the scholar has to really form an idea, back that idea up, prove that idea, you know, flesh all that stuff out, and that in and of itself is a process onto its, uh, its own. A master, in my view, that would be like a HEMA master, right, is, is specifically not doing that. I don't want to cement myself into one way of thinking about the historical materials. I do want to read and be aware of all of the different scholarly activities so that I can discern what skills, what drills, what methodologies, what techniques, you know, how, how to teach the techniques in what order, what is working for these teachers to develop their students in such a way that they are able to successfully routinely play their prizes or they are able to routinely teach other people that are developing in HEMA and be successful. What, you know, what does success mean? Well, in our standard, you know, success for senior free scholars is they play their prize successfully. And that is a, that is not an easy thing to do, right? And not only is it not easy because of the, like the stress and pressure of just the activity itself, right? And the investment of time and passion and energy and money to some extent, but and which is all which all means something to our modern view, right? Our modern mindset that all means something, and we can easily quantify that. But further, as they play their prize, are they demonstrating the techniques that the master thinks is important? Are they doing the things that we look at and value in HEMA generally? Like you know, are they doing clean zverks? Are they doing these these other techniques? You know, but. Those, those definitions, those definitions of what is a Klinsberg, what, what are these things, can change over time. 
You know, I have like four different interpretations that I teach regularly of, of that particular maneuver. So in my view, what I'm trying to say is if you have one gifted athlete, right, and you, and you train that gifted athlete to the point where they can go through the senior free scholar and they, they are successful, is that enough to declare a mastery of the ability to teach HEMA? And I'm saying no, because that one gifted person could be the could be the exception, right? So what I would want to see is I would want to see a clear track record of this master candidate having numerous senior free scholars under their tutelage, right? Because what that shows is a consistency of performance, a discipline in the fact that the master is the master candidate would have to be changing their mentality over time to accommodate the new scholarly activity or to to defeat the next you know gifted person that might come along that's just going to simply try and win with athleticism or win with some unique physical gifts you know um, I, I just I have seen over time that the persons that I look at as quality trainers are the persons that are constantly kind of reconfiguring their idea and understanding of the, the historical materials based on the scholarly activity, based on all that information that comes out over time. The ones that I think of that are not very, very quality are the ones that have cemented themselves into a certain understanding of one particular manuscript or master or another and are unwilling or unable or even uncaring to look at the scholarly activity that's occurring. I almost look at scholarly activity as a necessary component to understanding HEMA, but not necessarily a necessary activity. So while it's important to discern and be aware of and understand some of the different scholarly stuff that's going on, and you know they have to invest themselves in it to some extent to understand it, I look at it as an almost separate discipline in a way. Like I would almost think about like creating a a whole separate idea to, to address scholars in terms of some kind of ranking, even though that, that may or may not be adequate in terms of how you look at it. Um, do they even need to have a ranking structure? I mean, if someone has a doctorate or a PhD or something in history, well, that's reward enough. We can just, on the face of it, that's an established system already to d discern someone with some skill and knowledge in history. Does the HFA have to like recreate that? No, they don't because they're already established. We are trying to establish what does it take to continue to grow HEMA in such a way that it's a quality activity, that it's a martial activity, that's an activity with which we can quantify and establish. There's no reason to recreate you know, a PhD when a PhD already exists. Right, you can go and get your PhD in in historical fields, right, or whatever. You don't need to do that. This is how do I develop an individual? How do I recognize an individual who has themselves developed other individuals who are themselves teaching and training quality HEMA practitioners? That's that's the real question, right? Boots on the mat, um, the discipline required, the the ability to stoke the passion over years and years, you know. Being a master teacher in martial arts has a lot more to do with understanding people and how to drive passion 
and how to you know maintain discipline than it does understanding German, traditional you know Swabian or or whatever, right? So somebody brought up on our e list like, well, the master should should know German and should be able to create translations, and I'm like, you know. If, if someone is spending all of their time doing translations and doing all that work, they are, they are not having the time, they are not having the energy to go out and train a, a group of people for 20 plus years to, to know how to do HEMA appropriately, right? It's, it's like, you know, you, we can't expect the master to, to do all of that stuff. It's impossible, right? It's impossible. Um, However, they should be aware of it, right? They should be plugging into it and they should be able to use that information. They should be able to support that information. You know, I communicate with a lot of HEMA scholars constantly to say like, hey, you know, when I'm teaching X, Y, or Z, I'm encountering this problem all the time. And what do we think about this? Is there anything in the material that suggests an answer to this? This, this has a lot to do with the, uh, the thumb position rant that I've been on for the last year or so. Like, I was tired of teaching people to do things in a certain way and seeing them get their thumbs smacked repeatedly. And I'm like, there's got to be a better answer to this than the old traditional stuff I talked about where we're like, well, you know, you got the angle wrong, you got the pressure wrong, you got the timing wrong. That was all BS. And we kind of knew it for all those years. But how do we address it? You know, how, how do you address that problem? And how do you look at the source material? How do you look at the translations available? How do you look at, you know, stuff that Roger Norling was doing in terms of his papers and stuff and his scholarly work? It's like, oh, you know, see, they're, they're spending a lot more time on finger position on the hilt than we are giving credence to. We need to pay more attention to that. And as you pay more attention to that, other answers are derived from that. Oh, okay, the pressure, the energy is a little different. Oh, the edge alignment is different, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I can create a different kind of angle here. Oh, and now this hand position relates to these particular techniques, and this hand position doesn't, you see? So you start adding these puzzle pieces together, and you can start discerning lots of stuff. We will never have HEMA completely figured out. Never will, because it, it's, it's gone, right? Like all the people that did it for real, quotes, are gone. So it will never be discerned completely. It never really was discerned completely. So why are we thinking about our standards in such a way that it's an impossible standard ever to meet? We need to stop doing that. All right, so... Um, so that answers the question, uh, what is the purpose of this requirement being that the Canada have several senior free scholars under the belt? Uh, and also why specifically more than one? I answered that. Regarding record, is this to mean the Canada is to maintain and present physical records of the development and training of their students? I mean, maybe. It's probably a good idea that, you know, the candidate for master rank would have to present some kind of document or defend some kind of training methodology or curriculum, etc. I mean, I think that's a good idea. It's, and, and this speaks to why I have an official apprentice. Uh, and some people have kind of chided me and derided me a little bit for, for saying that, and they think it's a joke, but it's not a joke. It's very serious. Because if we take the idea and the concept of, of re, redeveloping HEMA, right, reclaiming HEMA, 
then the people that are invested and have done it for X amount of years, like more than 10, right? And that have developed other people that are good practitioners and teachers themselves. These people, people like myself and others, need to have somebody in their wings, somebody who can speak to the general nature with which they are approaching this thing, right? Um, so Katie, Lay Katie Layman is mine, right? And while we disagree in a lot of areas, she understands my base approach. She can speak to, even if she would change it, right? Even if she would do something totally different, but she at least has that knowledge to say like, okay, I kind of think I know what Aaron would think about in this particular situation because we've had a lot of conversations regarding all these kind of things. She, she kind of knows my mind in many ways uh, and we have a similar mindset in terms of how, how we are built basically. So like if I'm pissed about something, she's pissed about the same thing. She's happy about something. I'm kind of happy about the same thing in terms of training, right? So, so that's the idea behind an apprentice. If I die in a car accident tomorrow, if I have a massive stroke and can no longer communicate, she, she would be able to speak to some of these things and pick up the baton and move forward in wherever that journey might end. So unless you're doing podcasts, unless you're doing something where people can listen to it and, and hear your voice and understand kind of a little bit of your background in terms of what you're doing, unless you're writing down things, but even in the written word, I find a lot of difficulty with it. Look at all the difficulty we're having trying to interpret HEMA based on the historical manuals alone. It's like you can write down a sentence and you can have you know 50 different explanations to that sentence. But having something where you can hear the person, see the person, understand kind of what, what's going on, that, that's important. The apprentice is more than that. The apprentice even understands kind of some of the the simple like little things that you approach these these topics with you know the open-mindedness the uh the discipline the the affableness right everything doesn't have to be so serious right if you're constantly serious constantly like you know kind of a downer you know human beings don't like that right they don't want to be a part of something that that's that regimented that's reserved for like movies and you know stupid tropes that that we think about in terms of martial arts so uh, well, and that's that speaks to to the next question, which is uh, well. And hold on, let me go back to this other one. So, it, is it a requirement that they create the curriculum or methodology? And that was the uh, in regards to uh, this candidate must have a curriculum or methodology that is clear, consistent, and reproducible. Um, yeah, I mean they should they should create a curriculum and they should have something down in terms of uh, like their general stance on stuff. Now. Like I have discussed so far, it's very important that these things change over time, that these things are open, these things are not closed. So your definition of a zverk, you know, can be very basic in terms of what its basic uh, methodology is, its basic idea, but man, you should have an open mind. Is it long edge? Is it short edge? Is it both edges? Can you, you know, can you do it with the flat? I, I don't know. You know, you should be asking these questions. You should be looking and searching the different scholarly activity. You should be searching through the manuals. You should be constantly open. You know, the idea of the Krumpau is a great example over time. There was a certain individual that I don't agree with at all anymore who developed a Krumpau, which was very different, yet, yeah, I don't know. Is it is it different? Yeah, I guess it is. But does it contain some things that may 
have have been discussed in some of the manuscripts. It might. I don't know. Let's look at it, right? Just that open-mindedness is what I'm speaking to. It's one of those things where those persons that are completely invested in, oh, I have it down, I know exactly what they're talking about, those persons I question. And those persons are the ones that, over time, burn themselves out, or over time, become proven wrong, in quotes. Like, how can you prove somebody wrong over something that we don't even know if they ever had completely defined, right? It's it's a slippery scale, right? It's a sliding scale. So that that's the thing you got to keep in mind. Um, so yeah, they should have some kind of curriculum methodology, but that curriculum methodology should be more about training the human being in HEMA versus defining every little aspect of the art because as we're learning, it never really was uniformly defined to any particular consistency. So that that is a requirement that should be absent in your mind. And if you're out there thinking a master of HEMA must have all these definitions down, must know exactly what, you know, a krump is versus a zwerk versus, a, you know, all the stuk, that's, that's silliness. And you need to understand that there's no way to, to really discern all those things. We can have some idea, but those ideas should be constantly evolving and changing. Or consistent, depending upon the record, right? So uh, the next question, or the next, the next position I laid out in the master definition, the candidate shall have at least one or more apprentices, which uh, we already spoke to that. Da, 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 da. And then the question was, what is the definition of apprentice here? And I kind of laid that out. It's somebody who kind of knows your mind a little bit more than, than like a curriculum or methodology paper or outline would, would have. How, how do you train human beings in martial arts? You can have the, the best, most clear, most martially effective curriculum in the entire universe. But if you're a dullard and, and no fun to train with, you're not going to have many students. You're not. Because over time, people are going to get sick of you. And I know plenty of martial arts instructors that suck. And they suck not because they don't know what they're doing, but they suck because they're just no fun to be around. And not only that, but they're kind of jerks, you know? And it's like, who wants to be hanging around a jerk for 20 plus years learning martial arts? Martial arts is one of those activities that pulls out of us some of our best and some of our worst characteristics as a human being. And so as, as you go down this journey with another human being and you're each pulling, each, pulling these qualities out of each other and, and laying them bare to each other, it's a process where you become, you become so close to that individual. That's why all these relationships and things form in HEMA, because you get to know a human being very well and at a fundamental level that other people in the world do not get to experience. And sometimes when you learn stuff about people, you don't like it. You know, I don't like that part about, about Ben Lehman. He's so silly, right? And I love Ben Lehman. It's not what I'm saying. But... You know, the idea is you just learn stuff about people that cannot be discerned from other activities. So as you do that, you know, this person who's going to be the master that's invested in years and years of training people who are themselves training, there has to be this idea of, of comfort with themselves. This idea of comfort in that no one's going to be perfect and that there are going to be many faults that people have that you're going to become aware of, and provided 
you accept that as part of the human condition and are able to work through it in, in kindness and in, in care and in understanding, um, yet with a disciplined mind to say, we need to keep doing this together, right, with each other, not against each other, then, then that's the idea of mastery of teaching people how to teach others martial arts, you know. I've had so many experiences being, being around teachers of martial arts that you can just clearly understand immediately like where they derive their satisfaction, enjoyment out of it. You know, are they those, those ego personalities who are, you know, I'm the strongest person in the world and no one's going to beat me ever and I'm going to punish all of my students to the point where they just want to puke and die, you know. Versus the, the masters that are, the instructors, right, that are, and is that term interchangeable? Probably, maybe, somewhat, maybe not. These persons that are like, we're going to do this together, we're reaching an objective, we're trying to push each other, we're trying to learn from each other, we're trying to discern things about each other, we're trying to include a lot of ideas about the development of not only martial arts, but each other. Um, that that's one of those aspects that needs to be fleshed out more and needs to be understood because the persons that do not understand these things do not succeed in martial arts over time. They might have a club for a little while. Hey, so-and-so's got a club. Yeah, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it explodes or it implodes or it just vanishes or fades. You can, you can understand that. And I, I think I have reached a point where I can meet somebody listen to them talk about their club or listen to them talk about how they approach things and within about 20 seconds i've formed an opinion that usually over time holds true so not that i'm just all-knowing i'm just saying that you know being someone who's a little more experienced having running martial arts clubs for a while and also knowing people very well who have run martial arts clubs for a long time you know, a similar idea comes out every single time, regardless of the original um, concept or mentality. Okay, so the next idea is, um, this is one of the conditions I put out there in the proposal, but all the above conditions must be met and the conditions will be presented by the candidate in written form to the voting body. The candidate will then defend this document to the voting body in person before them at a convenient time and place for all parties involved. So now what I'm trying to speak to is like just getting away from the idea of these like self declarations or you submit something to everybody and everybody's got to vote. You know, everybody does not have the best interests always of the larger organization in mind. And that's just a natural fact. And it's not, it's not, uh, you're not blaming anybody for it. There's no specificity of, of individual that I have in mind here, so I'm not thinking about any particular individual. But all I'm trying to say is, like, if, if we left this up to a unanimous vote of all parties involved in the larger organization, then it's, it's failing because there are a lot of people that are brand new in the organization and don't understand all the, all the ins and outs of this argument. They don't understand the effort and the energy and the time that is that is taken to kind of flesh this out. Um, so why you know why would that person vote? If I was put in that position as a new person to vote, if I had to vote 
on something, I'd be like, well, no, because I don't understand it, right? So I, I wouldn't want to see that. I would want to see an accumulative, accumulative process where all, all these conditions are met. They have an apprentice. They have a lot of senior free scholars that they've taught and have been successful. Those senior free scholars are themselves out there teaching people and being successful in teaching people. It's a lineage. It's, it's an established track record. It's a history of success in teaching martial arts. That's what you're looking to encompass and encapsulate. And are they taking steps to preserve what they're doing in some fashion, whatever that fashion might be? I would want to present all of that. I would want to say, hey, look, I have developed all of these people who are known in the human community, and they are themselves developing these people who are known in the, in the human community. Almost like, you know, the, the, some of the Japanese uh, and Asian martial arts have like a tree, a family tree, you know, that goes back. I can say, well, I learned from this person, learned from this person, learned from this person. That's what we're trying to establish. I'm trying to say like, okay, uh, Jeremiah Bachhaus, he began his lessons with me in HEMA, and I developed him over time, and he became a senior free scholar, and then he became a provost, and now he's developed, you know, John Charles Boschhaus, uh, now he's developed Joe Munsky, now he's developed, you know, these individuals who are themselves now successful in HEMA. And then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the idea. Like, can you show a, a, a lineage? Can you show a progression of people that you've influenced? That doesn't have to mean like they're, they were your apprentice and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I thought of Jeremiah for many years as my apprentice. And um, I, we never actually put that tag on it. But I certainly thought of him that, that way. And now he's on his own doing his own thing under his own way and having a lot of success. You know, did I have something to do with that? Absolutely I did, you know. So that's, that's one of those things. And in HEMA, we, that's not popular, I think, in general. That's not, that's not something that's looked at as, as a general kind of acceptance, right? A lot of people shy away from this identification of like, well, I've influenced so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, right? But I think it's important that we, we reclaim that idea because that is important if we really take the idea of, of growing HEMA, of maintaining HEMA, expanding HEMA, and preserving HEMA in its latest iteration, and, and to not let it die out, then we have to point to who we learn from and say, I, I learned from this person, this person, this person, this person. You know? Who did I learn from? A lot of people, right? John Clements, Jake Norwood, right? Stu File, um, you know, on and on. Like, there's a lot of uh, Gene Tausk. There's a lot of people that I can point to in my past that I've learned HEMA from and that have formed my ideas about HEMA. Am I ashamed of that? No. Do I acknowledge it? Yeah. Are there things that they did that I don't do or wouldn't do? Yeah. But are there things they do that I do want to do? Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, that's important. All right. I'm actually running out of time, so I might have to do a version two of this um, because I only have a few minutes before my hour is up. But I hope that this beginning, this, this uh, first phase of this discussion gives some illumination to how serious we're taking this topic. We are looking at this topic in such a way that we understand there is going to be criticism. We understand there is going to be um, you know, chiding, joking, opportunities to take this thing not very seriously. 
But I am genuinely approaching this from the standpoint that it is important to take this seriously. It is important to understand the ins and outs of this. And in my view, a master, somebody who would be a master of martial arts is just that. They're not, they're not necessarily a master scholar, right? But they're aware of that scholarly activity. They're plugged into it. They're interfaced with it in such a way that they are contributing to it in some ways. Um, but they are developing those teachers who are themselves teaching successful candidates, successful people. They, they are continuing that effort to grow HEMA, to redevelop it as a legitimate martial art, to encompass all those, those humanistic qualities of what martial arts entails. They're confident and comfortable in explaining that stuff, not shying away from it or hiding it or ashamed of, of the fact that sometimes, you know, people screw up and um, they're human beings and, you know, but most times they succeed. So you've got to be open to all those ideas. You've got to be able to present a lineage to some extent. Like I have trained so-and-so who has been successful and they have trained so-and-so who has them also been successful. And now they're training so-and-so who is also successful. And not only is it one person, one gifted person that might come along, but it's a number of people who are doing the same thing. That to me is true mastery because they have mastered the idea. They have encompassed the idea of training in martial arts so that it can be passed on, so that the methods can be discerned, so that this continuity of, of successful practice is, is its own reward, right? Is its own, it becomes its own thing. So that in itself is, is reclaiming HEMA, Historical European Martial Arts. All right, folks, so that's going to be the end of this particular phase one, this episode one of the idea of the further discussions of the master rank based on the historical fencing affiliations, internal e-list, and some questions that have come up from a proposal that I made regarding the master rank. Thank you all. Have a great day, and I will talk to you soon. Train hard.